My name is Sarah Resnick, and I'm the host of this podcast and the owner of the online weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Fiber artist and weaver Consuelo Jimenez Underwood is the daughter of migrant agricultural workers, a Chicana mother and a father of Huichol descent. She received her BA and MA from San Diego State University and her MFA from San Jose State University, where she became a tenured professor. Her work is, among many other places, in the Smithsonian American Art Museum and in the Oakland Museum of Art. I've really been looking forward to the opportunity to speak and learn from you today, Consuelo. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Could you start out by introducing yourself and your background and also how you found your way towards textiles and weaving? Oh my gosh, that's the whole first part of a bio that probably take like 300 pages, but I'll try to summarize it. So I, I like to think of myself as a as triculturally bred. That's where I learned uh, English and Spanish were neither, I knew immediately it wasn't me. And uh, so I paid attention and sure enough, my mom loved the indigenous culture, but she was like second generation Chicana born in, in Hanford, California in 1909. And, but my father, uh, he was uh, uh, the indigenous one, so he was much more open-minded. And uh, so uh, I learned a lot from him, and he brought in all the idols words into our life, the Nahuatl, the, the Huichol uh, uh, folklore, and more importantly, the way of looking at the world. So I was influenced by him at home, but uh, out in school, uh, it was the English, you know, because I, uh, I, I grew up, I tell people, uh, up on Highway 99 following the crops up and down California. So I, I, I claimed the whole state because we would just park and find if there was any work and then live in a wherever uh, tent or a shed. And uh, that's how I grew up until I was like 15 or 16. and. We were, uh, times had passed, the, the pickings had become uh, mechanized. And uh, throughout the whole thing, though, I was a pretty happy camper inside, even though outside I was appeared angry or very uh, alone. Uh, but inside I was pretty happy because I knew that at 18, I was going to be able to fly, fly, uh, fly the coop. And so... Uh, as a kid, I, uh, I, I swore that, okay, I'm going to be the first one out of 11 of 12 to graduate with a high school diploma, uh, so I better stay clean in terms of no bad, no illegal, no, no uh, oops, and you hurt yourself. You got to stay healthy, wealthy, and wise until you're out of uh, the family's uh, fence, that's it, like that. And that's just one part of my livelihood. I could go on and on and on, but to make a long story short, I'm a product of, 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 of the California earth, the land, and the spirit, and certainly the ideals of the nation. Uh, I loved the Mickey Mouse Club. It brought everybody together. Um, I didn't get to see too much of it because we, our TVs were, were far and limited and the reception was not at all. But what little I saw of the, at least public culture, it felt good. And um, so I knew that if I just made it through 18, I would be able to survive in today's world and make sense of it and, and do well in the sense that 
I swear when I'm 18, I will never pick again. So here I am picking crops from, from my garden and loving it. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's who I am. Thank you. Thanks now. for introducing yourself. Were, there, were you interested in making art or weaving as a kid? Or when did you find your way towards that? Oh. See, I, I was introduced through weaving through my dad. When uh, I, before I went to first grade, meaning before I was five or six, I don't, around that age I went to first grade, I remember when he was, he was undocumented. So in the winter months in California, and that was during the big rain, rain, rain season that they had every 50 years or whatever, but he didn't have work. So he would hide out in the garage and, uh, and because uh, he was like, looked at the black, as the black sheep of the family, uh, for personal reasons in the family. But with me, it was really wonderful because I would sneak out and be with him. And what he would do, he would make a, he made a frame loom and he would uh, uh, make up this warp and weft uh, grid with threads and weave uh, a flat, uh, you know, like paper doll dresses, hmm. uh, a flat shape of a dress. and and uh, make two of them and sew them up and they would be my dresses and I would be so happy and during that time I didn't learn I mean I I, I, under, I knew what he was doing because the structure of the thread and all that but for me that was I think what imprinted me more than anything in terms of my father's side on my mother's side she was a different person you know she was a uh, far more uh, uh, darker, let's say, uh, but she loved to crochet. And uh, uh, I remember one of the first interactions we had was me sneaking up on her because she never wanted me to watch her, uh, sneaking up on her and watching her crochet those, remember those doilies that people would have with three-headed chickens and flowers everywhere and you couldn't tell what or what, but it was all beautiful. That's what she would make. And so uh, I remember seeking up on her and learning the, the uh, just uh, not even learning, just watching how wonderful it was to see the thread become a beautiful image fabric. And uh, she caught me and she threw the, the thread and, and the needle at me and said, do it. And I remember I was wow i didn't say a word i just had an out-of-body experience as i saw my hands create this real beautiful chain you know a white chain that that chain stitch mm -hmm. and uh that, i remember that was the maternal learning the cultural wanting to do it for something bigger than me and myself and i and wonderful was when I would see the rebosos on the indian the lowest of the low at the time in the 50s uh, in the border because uh, my mom had uh, a home in Mexicali we'd spend the winter months over when it was raining up here we'd go down to the Imperial Valley near uh, the city that was cut in half Mexicali and Calexico I remember uh, that um, uh, so she had homes on two sides and we'd often go back and forth you know from school after school uh, but uh, in that time, I would see it was a refugee center from all the indigenous people that were becoming landless in Mexico. They would head; they were heading toward the border, which and one of the border places was Mexicali, and they would be on the streets begging with their kids, with rebosos all around them, and the rebosos were so tattered, but I, with my mind's eye, could see, wow, 
that cloth is beautiful. And every one of those Indian women had it. They were all different. And it was like as necessary for us as our skirt and blouses, you know, it was almost more important than the skirt and blouse. It was heavy. And to me, it was like, <gasps> they're the ones that know how to make it too. I want to do that. I want to make one. And knowing that I'd never, never, ever get the chance to do it. But there I was in my early 20s getting accepted at either San Diego State U or or the La Jolla campus of U, uh, the UC at San Diego. Uh, and I got accepted in both, and I had the opportunity to study either the conceptual uh, approach to fiber and textile art at the UCSD campus, or I could get the hands-on, learn how to spin, dye, and weave from anything in the world so you don't need no stinky medicine to do your art at San Diego State with Joan Austin. And I did that. And so that's how I, 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 I did the time machine, whereas I know what I want to do. I want to learn how to make drills and bolsos from scratch. So that's what I learned with Joan Austin. She knew everything. She was the daughter of a Portuguese fisherman off of San Pedro. She went to Cranbrook and got the position at San Diego State. And she taught the fiber program, which at the time was called... Uh, the uh, what was it crafts and design or something like that and when I was there as an undergrad uh, the big uh, cons uh, academic discourse at the time was we've got to change the title got to change the title why we can't be craft no we can't be craft and then my and, you know they had vocals and uh, and uh, Ansel Adams were breaking craft into art and breaking the boundaries right and so I jump into that fray but a la Consuelo, of course, very different from anybody else, because of course I'm the only one that comes from my context, neck of the woods. Um, so that was the big discourse at the time was, you know, fiber uh, is uh, uh, not fiber, craft versus art. Um, I went in there into the school thinking, well, I would need to be an artist. And that's a whole nother discussion that I don't want to get into, but it's a wonderful story of how I decided to be the artist from uh, the fields, you know. But just to cut the time short, because I know our time is short, um, I will just say that uh, at, when I landed at San Diego State to do my uh, junior and senior year to get a, a, a BA degree in art, uh, and uh, and all set to do the crafts because I knew I wanted to do the textile. Uh, uh, they changed it to applied design. So I feel I know the whole story uh, about, not the whole story, but at least the San Diego State, Cranbrook, because I became, uh, right, off, right off the bat, Joan got me as her grad assistant. She took me under, under her wing. She mentored me. I tell people she helped me cross all the border lines I, I needed to cross to get from a mother of two children uh, living in Escondido, traveling 30 miles every day to go to San Diego State to learn how to weave and how to make weaving an art form as opposed to craft. And uh, I didn't uh, tell that was the mission. My mission was I just need a graduate degree so I can go to graduate school. I want to be an artist. You want to do it with threads. Why not? Anzo Adams and vocals are. 
and I got sick and tired of hearing the craft folk uh, stuff that was coming out of the slideshows from the history, art history, was the the American or the Mexican or the Peruvian uh, folk uh, textile craft. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It, you know, we got to break this boundary of looking at threads as craft. Meanwhile, uh, the feminist movement was taking on. And I just, I, I understood the feminist movement, but I never really wanted, uh, I never, uh, I didn't really agree totally. And the way we split, I think, in our philosophy was that I felt that the feminist movement at the time wanted to be accepted as as men or as, a, as in the man world. And I'm like, no, 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 no. They, they have to be accepted as women. You know, they're the ones that need to be wearing the skirts. They're the ones that need to honor the mother. Not us, we're already there. So in that way, I, I was different, but I thought, well, if I focus in on threads, because everybody knew that thread art meant hoops and macrame and feathers. The first thing I did when I got to San Diego State, I swear I will never weave a hoop, I will never put feathers, and I will never do the macrame or fringe element in my weavings. But teach me all you want to know, all you want to teach me, Joan, but I will do it a la consuelo. And she said, wow, how cool. Why don't you come and meet my friends? Why don't you come and meet my 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 professor acquaintance? You know, she would take me uh, as her graduate assistant, uh, very much like I did at at San Jose State with Jose, Dr. Jose Cochado. He's the one that introduced me to the academia uh, college world, which allowed me to be hired right off the bat as a graduate student into the full time tenure track. But I was blessed with these angels, you know along the way and I must say it's a extremely uh, uh, lonely course in many ways but extremely satisfying because literally I was the only one waving the banner as a grad student at even San Jose and at San Diego State saying yo I am fiber get over it and if you want to call it design or craft I don't really care because I'm going to weave art. None of my work ever since the beginning, except she forced me and it came out really bad, was going to be functional. It was going to learn how do I use the vocabulary, the textile process to create art. Wow. There's so much in what you just said that I want to ask you more about. <laughs> I know, but that's only the first two questions and we've got eight more. So that's the problem. <laughs> Not a problem. A good thing. I'm actually... Yes, it is. I keep saying, 80 years is too short. <laughs> no. And that's when I was 10. I was in the fields picking and I was, remember, the bookmobile would come to the fields and it was a little trailer was filled with books. And so I would go in there and come out with all the 10 books. And I realized at age three that, okay, if I'm going to catch up with these honeys that are next to me in my school, uh, in my school class, I got to not read fiction. I got to read science. I got to read autobiography. And it was wonderful. One of the biographies that blew me away was Joan of Arc. And I went, dang, here's this lady, 14 years old, kicking England out of France. And she gets burned at the stake. And she's true to her word and her spirit. And here I'm crying because I'm not going to be able to get out of the fields. Honey, by the time I'm, I'm going to be 10 
years old by the time I swear no more forever that when 10 years from now I will not be picking and I will have the high school diploma. So ever since then I've had 10 year goals at every 10 years and only because I realized oh my gosh every 10 years we have to sleep for three. We only really have six or seven years of life in a 10-year span. And you know what? Half of that, at least, if we're lucky, has to deal with the mundane. You know, having to find out where am I going to eat? How am I going to sleep? You know, who's going to pay for the rent? Mm -hmm. You know, I have to go shopping. That means maybe one to four years I have to do, quote, arte or whatever Consuelo wants. Go! So that's when I learned how to fly instead of run, instead of walk. <laughs> and why did you decide to fly towards being an artist instead of towards any of the other things? Because the art was the only thing you really couldn't measure except with idea. Hmm. Everything else was susceptible to Adam's task. Remember? Categorize, categorize, catalog, you know, measure. But art? How do you measure art? That's a really tough word. Three letters. That's why. Those are the mind games I would play inside my head. Hmm. And either that or religious studies, because that was my first entry. And I went, I will love the mystic. I love the line between reality and non-reality. Because that's where I had to hide for most of my youth. So I love that space, and I knew that space was special. And the closest thing that can get in there is, quote, religion, which I really threw out the door immediately at age four uh, because of the institutional aspects of it. And the other one was art, meaning, huh, music, beautiful images, you know, a, a movement like dance, you know what I mean? Things that... You can, we can do, but it's difficult to really explain it with words unless your art is words, and, that, and that's the valid art form. So for me, that, that was a mystery that I would never be able to unravel because I used to think I was pretty smart. I could do understand anything, but that stuff I couldn't understand. Once I left reality and got into that mystic area, you have to let go of understanding, as you do with art. Understanding is just part of it. You have to feel it, you know, and then that other word, or whatever it is, you know, enjoy it, uh, love it, I don't know, whatever word suits anybody's fancy or culture or, or time, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's why I did it. You wove a series of burial shrouds for your heroes, and I'm oh, yeah. to talk about yeah. who those heroes are and what it was like to create burial shrouds for them. It was wonderful. I love these heroes. As I told you, I used to um, uh, uh, read biographies, and, uh, uh, and, and Joan of Arc was definitely one of them. Uh, and I just told you why with her. The other one I loved was uh, uh, John Chapman, who uh, uh, Johnny Appleseed. I went, dang, he gets here and he doesn't want to grid the land off. This is mine, this is yours, whatever. 
He just wants to plant apples. Wow. What a concept. Why couldn't everybody be like that? He was a hero. The other one was um, Zapata. You've heard about Zapata from Mexico? Mm -hmm. Okay, he was one. He's the one that brought the indigenous voice to Mexico City. Unfortunately, they listened more to that other guy, uh, Pancho Villa, who brought the Mexican voice to Mexico City. And what was it like to create these burial shrouds? How did you weave them and, and why was it? Oh, the reason I did that, because every one of my heroes had a horrible death. And I felt that they didn't have a proper burial, let alone a burial, beautiful shroud for them to wrap their beautiful bodies in. So as a, the burial shrouds was my first series right after I didn't have to do any more classes where teachers are, are, are influencing me and telling me what to weave. It was my bust out of, I'm out of, I graduated, I'm an MFA or granted I'm a professor now, but still I don't have to have anybody, I don't have to talk to anybody about my work, I can just do it. And you know what folks, thank you heroes. Thank you Joan, thank you Zapata, thank you Woody, because you used to sing for free. And you, over here, Dr. Keen, you loved words. You loved your people, all of us. And you did have a dream. So I'm going to weave you folk because none of you had, you guys had horrible deaths. I'm going to weave an honor for you and of your death, a shroud. In, I remember as a graduate uh, MA at, at, with Joan Austin, uh, uh, we had to do research and I would go to the Natural History Museum in Balboa Park at San Diego and in their archives and as a graduate student I could go to their archives and I was really, uh, they had an incredible collection of the Peruvian textiles and I would go down there and look at all these textiles and the ones, and they were beautiful, right? And they were complex, colorful and then they would have the outer shell of the burial shroud, the last cloth that was on the outside of the bundle of fabric that they would wrap the body in. And invariably imagine the most loveliest, plain, loose, gauzy, but finely woven um, uh, llama uh, yarn um, uh, with a grid, no pattern, no color, just the natural color with this tiny borders of intricate uh, uh, tapestry and it was like a, 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 it was I could pick it up because we were because we were uh, uh, in the archives you know we were allowed to pick up they felt like butterfly wings they were so light and I thought to myself and hey, you've lasted at least 2,000 years oh my gosh this is the most and that was the outermost of the burial shrouds and that's when I came to love and respect the uh, burial shroud as an idea, as a concept, as an object. And I just wanted to carry that to my heroes, the ones that helped me go through the fields, go through academia, go through motherhood, you know, go through all these hoops to get to the place where I now was. Not only did I graduate with a mighty fine art MFA degree, uh, but also I got a full-time tenure track 
uh, position to head the textile department at San Jose State University. I mean, talk about blessings. But I remember, though, way back it started at San Diego State. Remember that whole challenge of the discourse that was going off? Well, I decided, I swore, I will put down my paintbrush and I will paint no more forever. And I picked up the needle and thread and I never looked back. When I was at San Jose State as a graduate student, there were like, I would say, seven other, shh, I would call them my closet textile artists. Consuelo, I used to weave. <laughs> and they were now perf performance, installation, mixed media, but they weren't fiber. I was the only fiber student as a graduate in my program for the three years, four years that I was there to get that MFA. Unbelievable. But I thought, you know what? That's when the faculty would challenge me. Why don't you put them in bronze? What do you think they'd be like in glass? And I'm like, I don't really care. You know, I want to do it in fiber. And I think you heard that one about, about Van Gogh. Mm -hmm. And that's when I, I that was at the height of that because fiber was not about to be in. They just allowed uh, vocals, you know, the textile, the chihuly was breaking. But these other ladies, Leah Cook and uh, 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 other great names, uh, uh, the, the lady, Carol Shaw Sutton, basketry sculptor, you know, they weren't art. That was an art. And I'm like, excuse me. So. It was really engaging because I knew, as being the lonely voice, I'm going to stand out. What? And then, with my background, even stand out more. So why be afraid? Do it. Go by yourself, you know? What is it that you wanted to change in the world of art and textiles when you were, you know, really insisting that you were going to stick with textiles as art? I'm curious both what you wanted to see changed and also what you still want to see changed now. I, wa I wanted to see change, and I think I've already seen it in the generations that came after me. Um, I wanted, because the, the textile arts were on the verge of dying off. It was literally like, throw them out in the water and they'll die, because we're not going to get them. You know? And so uh, I wanted, first of all, do not let this process die. If you accept it as art, it will continue, and it will and it will strengthen the voice of the arts with whomever, like in Europe, wants to use fabric or textile. They do it so well. Here, you know, it's sometimes now it's changing. Back then, it was a lot rougher, and didn't even appear. I wanted to sustain first of all the processes, and also give more light on the ancient anonymous women that went down because they were in, the work that they created was so incredible it was hardly ever seen by anybody but somebody like me just going into the libraries and the wee hours just to see more images of incredible thread work from you know 400 300 years ago so i wanted to bring light to that and i also wanted to um, empower 
the estrogen side of our society and in every young person that walked through those art hallways. Because until you understand the power and the beauty and the balance that is necessary, so you have to accept it of estrogen, you're not going to walk right. You'll be off balance. So that was the big picture. So I was always, you know, I'm always engaged, I think, I think in three levels. My personal the ones immediately around me, and then the huge universal one, you know? So my mission was definitely three-leveled. And I tried, because I knew the shortage of time, like we were just talking about earlier, my best to engage in all three and to learn about all three and negotiate all three inside of me so that it could come out right. And I think finally, after 45 billion years later, at age 69, it's coming out right. Mm. <laughs> so get at, keep at it, girls and boys. <laughs> when did you start to feel like it was coming out right, and, and what did that feel like? Um, I knew it was coming out right that when I was like age four, when I told you when I told you I had the autobiography yeah. experience. But I knew then it wasn't going to be coming out right till I had that stupid little paper that said MFA and it's not stupid and it's not little but it's I'm very fond of it I died for that paper mm -hmm. and until I had that piece of paper the documentation did I feel okay now you have to listen to me because I know you don't have this cute little paper so it wasn't uh, that I changed it just validated I finally felt validated to walk and speak like that now what happened I was totally set to walk that walk as a professional MFAer and just swoop the art world. And then right before I graduate, they throw the full-time tenure track position at me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I had expected to teach uh, convalescent centers, private uh, schools, two little kitties, you know, uh, my garage. I was going to teach there. And if that wasn't going to work out, I was going to have one of the best taquerias you ever been to. So I had no clue that I had even a chance, let alone I'd be offered that position. So when that happened, the I think the creative art uh, uh, trajectory it got lowered a bit. You know, I had to focus on academia. Yeah. And that was so frustrating. And I remember again. Okay. I'm 40 going on 50. I swear when I'm 50, I will have the full-time and the tenured and, uh, I mean, not the full-time, I'll be full professor and I'll be tenured because I'd see people around me that were there 30 years and never got any of that, right? And I'm going, and then I'll quit because mm -hmm. I'll be 50. What's the problem? I'll still have two more decades to rock and roll. Yeah. I got it at 10 years at 50 and I went in there and I said, I want to leave. And then, and I went, and here's some lovely people from over there, Boston area. Here's some from the Cranbrook. Here's some from the Bay Area. Here's some from L.A., the resumes of young people that would be more, better qualified to teach here than I am. And they went, well, Consuelo, if you do that, you will close a department. What? So I stayed 10 more years. And my mom and dad passed away, and I swore at the end of those 10 years, I will quit. I'm not going to be here till the end of time. So I did. I, I did an early retirement. So by the time I was 60, I no longer had to walk the hallways 
and sit in boring committee meetings and wonder about all the cool stuff I could be weaving. Because now I'm weaving nothing but cool stuff. I don't have enough time. The mundane world still fills up a lot of the time that I have for weaving. And I think I've got, if I'm going to be 69, 70, I think I've got 10 more years of really good weaving. That means at least two rebosos or through two to three weavings at most a year. That'll be 20 to 30 works that I can create. I would love to ask you about your work, Caution, which commemorates people who lose their lives crossing. Oh, yes. I was living in San Diego and uh, we, we would drive that freeway where they put the first one back there in the 80s. And I remember when we, you know, it's a freeway, four or five lanes, you know, 70, 75 miles an hour, and woo! And the, uh, and the, and the whole idea was uh, to put it there because they had another that was fought in the courts, but they still kept it there. And uh, since then, they have stopped it. Uh, was another uh, check stop border point, like five miles inside of the U.S. border on the freeway. And so, because a lot of people didn't know about it, uh, especially the undocumented ones or even people like us, people that just were first time ever, you expected that when you crossed the U.S.-Mexican border, that was it. You were in the U.S. and move on. But invariably, we had to be stopped, and everybody did. And, of course, who are going to be the ones reviewed? The ones that look like me, you know? And so that meant that uh, a lot of the undocumented people that were coming across the border, when they would see that that uh, second border crossing, they would literally try to cross the freeway and run back to San Diego. And that's when uh, the people were being squished. And I remember reading that when they were, uh, the people would get hit at 75 miles an hour, often the cars couldn't slow down, uh, that uh, that all that was left recognizable was uh, fragments of the human fabric, the fabric, and the photographs, because they would carry photographs of loved ones. And that those would be the, re and shoes, clothing, but that the body parts would be so out of, messed up that you couldn't recognize them. So for me, I went, oh my gosh, and that's when I started using the squares for uh, one of the bigger pieces, the 10 foot by 17, uh, C. Jane Run, which I call it that because at the time, I think it was like a hundred something people had been, had been killed already on the freeway. Uh, and this is in the early 90s. And I paid homage to each one of them with a square, with a caution sign, uh, uh, on it, but I started using it because when I first saw it, I was in the, I was I was commuting from the graduate program from uh, San Diego to the one over here at San Jose, and uh, I remember going, oh my gosh, they're treating us like animals now, and uh, and I certainly was that little girl, because my father was undocumented until I was like ten years old, my mother was a citizen, so I remember in the fields. Uh, being being uh, chased by the INS and then running down my dad and us and he the, he would be the one taken away because he would be the only one that was undocumented. So unfortunately for me, my dad was one of the few in the family that would take care of me. And so I felt a loss, a big loss, 
until my mom figured out a way how to go down there uh, and uh, to the Mexicali Colectico border where he, they would hook up and then somehow we would smuggle him across. And I remember that these were terrible, terrifying, horrific times for me. And uh, when I saw that sign again, as I was leaving uh, the borderlands of the immigration fruit picking childhood into the new dawn of graduate school and galleries, I was reminded, oh my gosh, I'm that little girl they just put up there. So I swear, okay, I'm not going to forget you. I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you and, 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 and me and our voice to say, this is wrong. The elements, the sun, everybody, the birds, the plants, we don't like this fence documentation border stuff. So that's what started it. And uh, I don't use it as much because it's it's gotten so popular. And uh, I did do one, though, just recently in my Huntington Beach and the one that I did at the Great Western University over there in D.C., uh, a big borderline. I did use it, but what I did is I modified it. I put the mother in front of the man who's leading the charge because in my family, it was my mom who led the charge of what we would do as a family and my dad would follow and I'd follow my dad. So if you look at those works, notice the woman is leading as opposed to the man. And those are pretty much the only time that I've used it in the last five years. And I think, you know, I'm also really interested in, in hearing you talk about your series of work called land grabs and about the materials and the cotton that you used for those pieces. Oh my gosh, you are one of two. I was telling my husband, Marcos, uh, uh, you know, there's only been like two, maybe three people that have ever asked me or mentioned that piece to me. Wow, that is one of my best pieces ever, okay? Tell, tell us about them. Tell me, tell me, like, can you describe a little bit about what they look like and also the, the ideas behind them? Okay, so what you got to imagine, you're in some missionary, Catholic, Christian home, and there's a little altar. There's a little altar that has uh, uh, a, a little shelf that holds uh, a colored candle. And along the, uh, on the, on the base of the candle, uh, the candle is this, those little glasses, uh, those little glass uh, candles. They're like five inches high. And um, around the base of the, of the, of the candle, on the shelf, on those little shelves that are like maybe eight inch uh, wide, just so enough to hold the, the the candle, and little chips of gold and little seeds of corn. The two extreme opposites of what is valuable to an Indian versus a non-Indian. An Indian back in the day, the corn was more valuable. To a non-Indian, of course, it's the gold. So you have that conflict going on, and there's the Holy Spirit in the candle lit. On, on, uh, on top of the candle is a frame that's like 10, 12-inch square with nails all around it, evoking to me the cross with nails. But right now, it looks like a frame with a weaving inside of it, a little miniature tapestry. 
and there's five of these little shelves that go across the room like maybe for like 10 feet. So the first one is uh, the whole the whole series each each uh, each frame each tapestry inside the frame is a rendition of the Americas the continent mm -hmm. um, each one is made of a different material the series is called land grabs it was in honor of our 500 year celebration of being a nation or a continent or whatever or Columbus I, that was when I made it to honor the big 500 year Columbus discovery I don't remember the materials but I do remember each material signified the era. The first era being the line of demarcation when the Pope said, okay, Spain and Portugal, this part's yours, this other part's yours. That was the first land grab when the, when the Pope made that line across the Americas. The second land grab was when the English and the French came and settled the Northeast. And I think that's the one where the hemp is going. The third one was when the Louisiana Purchase, which was in silk. I remember France bought uh, Louisiana from one of our uh, uh, vice presidents, or our, Thomas Jefferson, I think, sold it for like five million. Just did it. Didn't even know what it was, and he sold it. Mm -hmm. uh, the fourth one was the uh, the Gadsden uh, Treaty, where they made the treaty with the big war with Mexico. And uh, so all of these are these border lines, these land grabs that have defined our country, nation's history. The last one was Hispanics Below, where I used rayon. I remember that one, the synthetic rayon. It looks like gold, but it's just oil. So um, that was the land grab. It was like, for me, my interpretation of political history and the materials, yes, they were important. You know, when they first got here, they had cotton in all the different colors, not just brown. You know, the, the hemp was a very big trade industry for the East Coast and the South before the tobacco. And uh, Louisiana, the French loved their silk. I know that. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I always tell the students, I always told the students, you know, materials speak, they have history, they have, they have, they're imbued with, with character. It's up to us as artists to understand their character so that we can use them more effectively to voice whatever it is we're voicing. So I think the land grabs for me worked. It worked really well. I felt so much better after I did it. I went, so there, okay, there, there's history a la Consuelo. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Consuelo, I wish I could keep talking to you for hours. I'm, I've really enjoyed I tell you it's a book. from your stories and learning. Consider the book. <laughs> <laughs> I have images to throw out the window. Oh my gosh, that's one thing. Another thing Joan Austin taught me, document, document, document. Hmm. She would document everything. She taught me how to cross the borderline into the art world. And I tell people, Dr. Jose Colchado at San Jose State, he taught me how to cross into the academic history world.
So mm. I always said from the beginning, I don't want to be a star. I don't need to be on the cover. I just want to be a footnote. That somewhere, somewhere long ago, there was this crazy uh, Chicana, Mexican, American, Indian woman that would weave art. So I think it's, I think it's happening. So right now I feel so good because everything I make, I think, is going to be just like dessert. You know, it's going to be the best of, the funnest of, the most uh, challenging. And the most challenging thing of all, who knew, oh, I knew it, was time. There's not enough time in the world. There isn't. 80 years is not enough times to go around the sun. So, but maybe it's okay. You know, I know it's okay. It's long enough because uh, uh, nine months was prior. And who knew before that? And who knows before afterwards. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty well happy with the way the textiles uh, situation is. I'm happy that folk like you, that are a younger generation, are keeping on. And that's all I wanted to do was be just part of the baton race to keep it on during the, uh, the 70, 80s, 80, 90s, when it was on the verge of, of, of losing its, I thought, or uh, it wasn't being placed in its proper place, you know. It was going to be uh, abandoned and ignored, and I was really didn't want that to happen. Yes. Before we sign off, I'm I'm wondering if I can ask you two more questions. Do you have time? I know we're going. Yes, a yes, long. yes, sir. Okay. So the first question is if you if you could tell people where they can find out more about you and about your work, and then the last question is if you have any closing pieces of advice or words of wisdom for weavers out there. Okay, the first one is kind of easy, and uh, I'm hoping uh, 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 it's just go to the website, you know, and contact me. And if I and if you have any questions, you know, and then on you can Google me. There's all kinds of articles and stuff I see out there, you know. And that for me would be a black hole of ten years to do all that. But uh, if they want more, they can easily contact me on the website through the in the contact form. Um, uh, there is a book that's coming out. The uh, Laura, Dr. Laura Perez from Berkeley, is uh, just uh, sent me two nights ago the the chapters and the synopsises of the writers that I've already written, and uh, basically the package she's going to present to three publishers who are interested in in the book. So that would be a really good source, and I think if she puts it in this May, I think they would publish it by the following year. And any advice? Uh, Ah, I hate to sound like a mom, but, you know, just keep busy and doing things that you want to do and that are good for all of us, especially yourself, you know? Um, and if it's uh, textiles and threads, then do it, you know? And if you want to do it on a Sunday, do it on a Sunday. If you want to do it 10 days a, uh, a month, do it 10 days a month. If you want to do it every, every day, even better. But just do it. Just create something from nothing. And it, it empowers the, the spirit, the mind, the humanness, the humanness in us. Gets, what do you call it, uh, uh, authenticized, you know. And, and, and it's wonderful. And it's not just about women or men, you know. It's, it's, it's both. And it's 
all everything you know i always i always said it was the father the son and the holy ghost the genderless holy ghost you know how about just the father mother and the genderless holy ghost you know but include the spirit in everything because it's wonderful with the spirit it's like the gas it's like the gasoline for the motor you know or or something like that Anyway, I could babble. It's time for me to say goodbye. Thank you so much for <laughs> Starting taking the, the babble. Time. I really appreciate it. And it was great to talk to you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. That's a wrap. If you'd like to see photos of the work Consuelo was discussing in this conversation, including the burial shrouds, the land grabs, and the caution pieces, you can find them in the show notes at www.gistyarn.com slash episode hyphen 15. That's G-I-S-T-Y-A-R-N dot com. Next week on the podcast, I'm talking to Jessica Wilson, who is a weaver in Houston, Texas, and founder of the Houston Fiber Folk Meetup. Tune in next Monday to listen, and until next time, happy weaving! Happy weaving!